Good morning. As Jessica said, uh, living the Christian life and this process of sanctification is very difficult to do uh, on our own, better to do it with others, and that's actually God's intention. Uh, just this last year, one of the members of our church, uh, yeah, he's still a member, and one of our old students uh, was drafted in the seventh round by the Boston Red Sox, so pretty cool. Brock Bell getting drafted and part of now the Red Sox organization. And, uh, and yet at the same time, though he's part of the Red Sox organization, he's not yet in the major leagues, is he? He's got some levels. He's got a farm system he's going to have to work through. He's going to have to make some progress before he reaches his goal. And just as it, as it is with Brock and players who got drafted this year, so it is with you and I. Positionally, Jesus has cleansed us. We positionally are holy before God. And at the same time, we have progress to make in our holiness. We are not yet as we will be like Christ. As we read and go back to John 13 today, we need to keep this paradigm and this reality in mind that we are positionally holy and yet progressively becoming holy, both at the same time. Baseball has a pretty well-developed system to get somebody from point A to point B. It's their farm system. It's about six levels before you can make it to the major leagues. So how do we as Christians, how does God get us from point A to point B? Move us along, progressing in our holiness. What's God's plan? Does he have a farm system? Is it a set of Sunday school classes or a few studies you go through and you come out the other end perfect? We're going to look here at John 13 to see what God's plan for moving us along in our holiness is today. So page 900 in your pew Bible, or uh, John 13, 31 through 35 in your own Bible, or on your phone. As you're turning there, you know, last week, Pastor Cody, uh, he really did the heavy lifting for us in John 13. Uh, I'm essentially today the guy you invited to come help you move. And I showed up just as the last box was getting taken off the truck. And the only thing left to do is grab a few pillows from the passenger seat. <clears throat> Technically, I am contributing, uh, though we can't say that it's been an equal, equal work, okay? So that's kind of what I'm doing today. John 13, 31 through 35. It's been, it's been seven days since we last read this text together and got together as a family to read the Bible uh, but it's only been like 10 minutes in the events of that, of that Passover night. So not much time has passed between last week and this week as we dive into the text. So let's go ahead and read. I'll read starting in verse 31. We'll read to 35. When he had gone out, he's referring to Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, the one who's going out to betray him and give him up to the authorities. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and, God, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is a new commandment, Jesus says. We might think that it sounds a lot like some of the commandments in the Old Testament and of 
over 3,000 years of Old Testament instruction and even the whole ministry of Jesus up until this point, Jesus is saying, this is something new that I'm bringing to you. And we might think, well, isn't this something old being repackaged? We'll talk about that. In fact, it is something new. It's something new because it's got a new subject, one another. It's got a new standard for love, and that's Jesus's. And it's got a new purpose, and that's to pursue holiness. This is, in fact, a new commandment. And as we talk about love, children have a lot to teach us about love. If you have a child or uh, have nieces or nephews, then you know a lot about love. This is my newest child. She's one month old today. Yeah, praise God. <laughs> and and when, you, when you hold your child in your arms, there you go. She's going to sleep. She's just like her dad growing up, just sleeping through the sermon. <laughs> even, when even when your dad is preaching, you do it. I did it too. It's okay. When you hold a child in your arms uh, or maybe a niece or a nephew, um, you don't have to be a parent to, to understand this, so it certainly helps. Uh, just instantly, there's something that's true of all of us, Christian or non-Christian, that you just know immediately that I would do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. I would give my life for, for her if I had to. If it came to that, I mean, I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to weigh the pros and cons about, you know, would this make sense or would this be good or whatever. Go have life insurance. You just, I know, I would do it immediately. Immediately, I would just, I would give my life for her if it came to that. Or my son Levi, when you, when you look at him and your heart's just welling up, you just know it's just a, a love that you have that even if it needed to, you would express it if it came down to it. You would, you would commit the biggest act of love that the world knows, and that's what Jesus said, which is to lay down your life for your friend. And you know that you would do that for your own child. This is that type of love that Jesus is talking about. But it's actually not the big expression of love that we were just thinking about. As we read here again, you're going to see something about the big expressions of love and that the expressions of love that come before it. Because before that day comes, if it ever comes, where you and I would give our life for somebody, this big outward expression of sacrificial love, before that day ever comes, before you or I can ever love somebody that way, outwardly, a great inward act of love must first happen. And we must not be willing to die for somebody else, but we must die to ourselves first. Verses 31 and 32 say, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. In other words, the cross is coming really soon. This big outward act of love that Jesus is going to demonstrate that has for us become the model of ultimate love, it's about to happen at once. It's coming. It's coming this weekend. It's soon. His disciples don't understand it. His, his friends don't understand it, but it's about to happen. He's about to make atonement for us on the cross. But before that day, before the cross ever happened, Jesus has already died, and he'd already died to himself, hadn't he? And we could go outside this text to find all sorts of examples. We could go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, not my will, but yours be done. God, not what I want to happen in my life, but you laying down his life already. But we don't have to go outside John 13. We just have to go backwards to what we looked at last week. So let's go back. As you read verse 34, 
the one we just read, he says, notice, this, notice the tense of the verb. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you are also to love one another. Notice that he's talking about loving in the present tense, but he's talking about a past event, just as I have loved you. He's saying that the, the love we ought to have for one another is not, is not defined at the cross. He defined it somewhere else. He bases it in history in some other event, and it's not the cross, is it? It might fully express itself in the cross, but it's based, it's grounded in your love and I, our love for one another is grounded in something that has already happened. And what's he talking about? Well, just a few moments earlier, in that evening, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about when he washed his disciples' feet. If we read verses 3 through 5 of John 13, I'll read it to us. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Pay attention to those two words, laid aside. Jesus laid aside his robes and he put on a towel. And as Cody reminded us last week, that it's very clear in Jesus' words to his disciples that he's not just talking about literal foot washing this entire time. He begins with that but he moves to a much deeper reality, doesn't he? And so in the same way, when Jesus is taking off his robes, he's not simply just doing something practical, but he's actually getting to a deeper reality with his actions. When Jesus laid aside his robes, he was taking off the principal suit and putting on a janitor's outfit. You know, we don't have maids and butlers anymore uh, in our homes, and I don't in mine at least. Uh, but we do have roles, and we, we do have these unspoken and spoken hierarchies in our social circles, social circles, don't we? There are some jobs uh, that you look at that are above you, above your pay grade, and uh, you're not there yet. You'd like to get there, but you're not there. And there are other jobs that you're not going to go back to or that you simply won't work because they're beneath you or they're beneath me. So even in our social circles, we see things as uh, higher and lower and work to do that is... Uh, it would be awesome if I was asked to do this and then work that is below me and I don't want to do, that's for somebody else. When I wrestled in high school, every day we had to have the mats clean before practice. We had to mop them with disinfectant and then they had to be dried before we could even get on the mat to stretch. And, uh, and we had managers, usually girls that had volunteered to help take attendance and you know, do other administrative tasks and things like that, uh, that would get there uh, a little bit early and as we were getting ready to stretch and warm up. But it wasn't the managers who cleaned and dried the mats. It was the freshmen, as you can imagine. You're not going to see a senior or a junior, and only a sophomore if there's not enough freshmen cleaning the mats. Now, we never told them that it was their job. It was just their job, and they figured it out because there was this unspoken social order. Or uh, we go on mission trips and camps. You ever get into a room with a bunch of people, and uh, not all beds are created equal when you're camping. And so you may come into a room, this last summer it was uh, two bunk beds, you have a twin on top and a twin on bottom, and then right next to that you have a twin on top, but then you got that full bed on the bottom. And I had my own separate room with a queen, so I, that wasn't, <laughs> decision would have been already made if, if I was in that room. But you can imagine if you stick four boys in that room of different ages and of different classes in high school, you can imagine who's going to get that 
full bed, can't you? There's not usually even an argument about it. It's just kind of like, <laughs> I know this is futile to even try to, and people will just laugh at me, right? It's just, here, you take it, you're the oldest. If you uh, had siblings in the car and you had a minivan, we had a minivan, and there's only two bucket seats, and then there's that back row. And I don't know what it is, the back row has more space, but there's something about that bucket seat because you can lean back and it's just, feel like you're in the captain's chair. And so who gets the bucket seats? My brother and sister, because they're older, not me, right? So there's this social order to things. There's this pecking order. Even at church, sometimes we can bring that into the church, and we think about work that needs to be done, and you might call a church, hey, I've got like 50 choya cactuses that I need removed, and maybe we could just get the students to do it, you know, just get their bare hands. They could come in, they're tough, and just remove the cactuses from my backyard, right? Of course, I'm not going to pay them. It's just an opportunity for them to serve, right? Or maybe... <laughs> Maybe we need to canvas the neighborhood for like a, a winter event that I'm just going to make up and called Snowy Afternoon. And you say, well, we have to cover Awatuki in this zip code with these door hangers. And, well, I know what. Maybe we could get the teenagers to do that, right? I'm an adult. Technically, I can walk, but I'm not really wanting to do that. Let's get the students to do the grunt work. Totally hypothetical situation. Did not get brought up or suggested. I'm just saying... <laughs> There's just this way, we're just like, well, there's work to do, and that work is reserved for somebody else. And this is that same situation with Jesus. There's work to be done, washing people's feet, and there's somebody who does that. And it, and it, ain't, and it ain't one of the disciples, and it, normally, and it ain't Jesus. There's people who are hired to do that job, and it, but it's not any of them. And yet Jesus, what does he do? He takes off his robe, he lays it aside, and he takes on the garments, the uniform of the person who does that, in effect saying, I am the lowest of the low. I will take on the position. I'm, I'm going to be the lowest of the low. And in laying aside his robes, he was laying aside his status. It wasn't just making a practical decision. He was demonstrating something to his disciples and to us. And in laying aside his robes, he was laying aside his status. And in forsaking this outer garment, he was forsaking entitlement. He was foregoing anything that he deserved because of his position, because of who he was, because of his role in the community. He was letting it go. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 summarizes this. You've probably heard this before. If you've uh, read through Philippians, have it in your mind. It says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Jesus says that we're to love one another in the same way that he has loved us. What that means for you and for me, if you're a Christian, is that love is not a word open to interpretation. Love is not a word open to being redefined as time goes on or our circumstances change. Jesus has defined love for us, and he's grounded it in an act in history. And he refers us back to it, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. We can contextualize love. Yes, it may look different. You may not need your feet washed and that may not make much sense. But how we treat and relate to one another is not based on our own definition. We don't get to decide why Christian relationships, what the purpose of a Christian relationship and friendship is. We don't get to determine that. Jesus has decided for us. It's for your and my sanctification. We need our feet washed by one another. We are positionally holy before God, but we still have progress to make. 
And we need one another to make that progress. In fact, it's going to take each other if we're going to grow and if we're going to become holy. In choosing to lay aside status and forsake entitlement, Jesus demonstrated love. Love, as a progenitor of love defines it, is to lay aside status and forsake entitlement to pursue the holiness of another person. This is what love is. In the Northwest, we have these uh, drive-through coffee stands. There's a couple out here, but like not even drive-through coffee stands where there's a lobby, even potentially, but like not even a walk-up lobby because of the weather in the Northwest. They have a, we have a lot of these like just buildings and you can only drive through them. And have you guys ever been uh, either at a restaurant or maybe in the line of a fast food place or a coffee stand and you found out, you got to the front and to pay the, after your order and you found out that the person in front of you had paid for your order? Me neither. I've never happened to me either. <laughs> but I've heard about it, right? We hear about it sometimes. Well, it happened. And uh, this owner of this Portland coffee stand remembers it because not just one person paid for the coffee order of the people behind them, but that one person started a chain reaction that lasted for two hours, 27 customers paying for the coffee of the people behind them. Again, I've never been in that. That sounds wonderful uh, to be in. But I've, maybe one day we'll be a part of that. But no matter what, if you or I are in that, so whether you're in the beginning or the middle or the end, you know what we don't do? I'm not saying you, 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 you at some point that's got to stop, right? At some point somebody's going to break the chain. But no matter what, no matter your situation, no matter where you're at, there's at least one thing you do not do in that situation. And it's when you get up to the drive through window and you find out that somebody paid for your order, what you do not do is you do not hand them a coupon for a dollar off a McRib to use for the next person. You don't give them a coupon at McDonald's at, the, at Starbucks. Not only because it's not useful, but it is not the same thing as having your coffee paid for. You don't give somebody a McDonald's coupon when they paid for your coffee. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying, love one another in the same way that I have loved you. You don't get to give them your version of love. You don't get to give them what you think would be really good. The standard for love is no longer love your neighbor as yourself. It's love each other as I have loved you. In the same way. Jesus says this in verses 14 and 15 uh, that we read last week. He, he says it like this. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, so you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. And then he repeats it because he wants to get it communicated to us. A new commandment I give to you, verse 34, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another just as I have loved you. In the same way, if we were to love one another, but it doesn't have sanctification, helping another person pursue holiness, become complete and mature in Christ, as Colossians 1.28 says, if, if our love for one another is not that, then you're just handing your friend a McDonald's McRib coupon. That's all you're doing. It's not the same love that Jesus has loved us because Jesus loved us with sanctification as its goal, with helping us become more complete, mature in Christ, to progress us along in this path that God has set before us. And so foot washing in 21st century America, no matter the form it takes, is helping your brother and sister progress in their holiness at whatever personal cost to yourself. No matter what you must lay aside, no matter what I must cut out of my life, whatever it takes, I will do whatever it takes to love another person. We have to do whatever it takes to love each other, no matter what it means. We have to. We have to. 
There's no other option. This is the only love that we know as Christians. This is the only love that was demonstrated to us. Not love that reserves and holds back a few things, but love that was willing to sacrifice all things for the good of another person, particularly their holiness and maturity and their good. It's a new commandment because we have a new standard, Jesus. It's a new commandment because we have a new subject, one another. And it's a new commandment because it has a new purpose, helping one another pursue holiness. There was a man who was leaving. He found out on a day like today, on a Sunday, that he was leaving all of next week for business. He had planned to be in the office tomorrow, uh, but he found out he got called from work and said, hey, we're going to have to send you out. You're going to be gone until Thursday. Not, usually not a problem, but he hadn't done his laundry and he didn't have any work shirts ready. So he thought to himself, he said, I remember there's a, a place across town. There's a sign. I saw that sign. I remember in my height it said, one hour dry cleaning. I'll go there. I'll just, I'll take the afternoon. I'll go get my, my clothes laundered there. So he drives across town. He finds a sign, one hour dry cleaning. He walks in. He arrives. He walks in. He gives them their bag and he begins to fill out the ticket and the tag. And he tells, hands it to the cleaner, says, I'm going to need these in one hour. Well, she says, why? I can't get these back to you till Tuesday. He says, I thought, I thought you did dry cleaning in an hour, he said. He said, no, replied, that's just the name of the store. <laughs> in the same way, when we say we're Christians, but not love each other with this Jesus kind of love, we're going to create a lot of confusion amongst those who are watching us, and a lot of disillusionment. Because it's by this love that all men will know that you are my disciples, when you have this kind of love for one another. A lot is at stake, isn't it, in the way how we treat and love one another. Tertullian, he was a second century theologian. He was one of the first Christians to begin writing on this subject of apologetics, meaning making a reasonable defense and explanation about Christianity in the culture in which he lived. It's trying to explain it and help people understand it and write against false doctrines. And in one of his books, he records uh, the general statement and, and opinion of the non-Christians at the time and what they thought about the Christians. And he, he, he wrote these words, quote, Behold, how these Christians love each other, how ready they are to die for each other. But you know, before these Christians were ready to die for each other, they had died to themselves. And before we would be ready to die for one another. We have to die to ourself. Joe Adcock is an assistant dean of students at my alma mater. And as part of the university's administration, he wears a lot of hats, as you can imagine. He's got a demanding job. The university I went to has uh, grown probably four times over just in its on-campus student body uh, since I graduated. But on top of that, Joe has a wife And at the time I was in school, he had a new young family. He had a newborn. And now they're about to graduate high school, go to college. But at the time, he was a dad with a newborn and a wife and a job in a university, growing university's administration. He was serving at his church. Joe had a lot to do, and he had a lot going on in his life. But when Joe received a voicemail from an 18-year-old college student, who was trapped in sexual sin. Joe could have used his schedule, his limited availability, his position in the administration, his responsibilities at home, his extended family who was nearby and aging. He could have used all those as as a reason to exempt himself and to pass me off to another person. 
But instead, Joe laid aside his status, and he did not consider his position or even his schedule Monday mornings to be off limits from loving another brother in the same way that Christ had loved him. And because Joe laid aside his status, because he forsake entitlement, forsook entitlement, that 18-year-old, who is now a 34-year-old father of two and a husband, experienced freedom from pornography for the first time since he was 10. Joe was willing to love somebody, even if it took an hour and a half every Monday morning for an entire year. You and I have stuff to do Monday morning at work, don't we? And certainly at 10 o'clock. And it wasn't like Joe was like, well, I've got this hour and a half just wide open all year. And it's going to take you and I being willing to look at the things that we've laid claim to in our life that have been off limits for a very long time if God wants to interrupt that so that we can love one another and help each other pursue holiness. Because my greatest need and your greatest need is not to get a better job, it's not to be advanced, it's not to promote, it's to help one another, it's to love one another. And that's gonna mean we gotta do whatever it takes. Because before you're gonna lay down your life for your kids and before I'm gonna lay down my life for you, I'm gonna have to die and lay down my life for myself, to myself. I'm gonna have to let go of some things that I've been holding on to. And we as a church will have to look at our lives and to do the same. Because I'll tell you what doesn't work, and Jessica said this in our video, what doesn't work as a Christian is trying to live as a Christian to live a holy life and to do it on your own. I'm just gonna tell you that does not work because I did it for a very long time and it did not work. Thinking you can play a game of baseball by yourself, that's all it is. It doesn't work because you were not designed to play the game by yourself. You were designed, you were given a group of people, we call it family, to come around you, for you to love and for them to love you. So if you're not a Christian, it might be, you might be even be in this room because there's some part of Christianity that is at least attractive to you. You're at least open to it. It might very likely be the relationships, the love that you've experienced or the friendships or the, the people loving you or your family. I, I, you're, being invited, you're being invited today in this text and through Jesus to, to not stand outside the restaurant and admire the smells. But God is inviting you, opening the door for you to come in, to sit down and to eat with others. He's opened the door for you. He's inviting you in through the gospel. He made a way for it on the cross so that nobody would have a roadblock to come to him. You're being invited in, and I want to encourage you to take another step in that direction. Living out this command as Christians, speaking to the Christians, it's going to necessitate that we're present with one another because you cannot love your family with this Jesus-type love if you're not with your family. We're going to have to be present with each other. You're going to have to be present with other Christians and it's not less than Sunday mornings, but it sure is more than a Sunday morning. If you just want to think through some of the words of Jesus, the commands of Scripture, the directions for the Christian life, just write those down and think how many of these can actually realistically be accomplished and lived out faithfully from 9 to 10.15 on a Sunday morning. 95% of what God gives us to do and wants us to do cannot be lived out on a Sunday morning. Not to downplay what we do and what we get together here, but the Christian life is a whole lot more than a Sunday morning, and it's a whole lot more than a Sunday morning and a Tuesday night. And Christian community is a whole lot more than a, a, a Foothills group gathering, but it at least begins there. Small groups, really, if you think about them, they're not an invention of Foothills. Or find, you find them at almost every church, and there's a reason for that. They've been around since the church began. If you think about Acts 2, 
Any church that's got more than 10 people has a need for smaller groups. In Acts 2, we heard about the church is growing. It's 3,000 and growing. And what were they doing in Acts 2? They were meeting together in each other's homes, breaking bread, breaking bread and fellowshipping. Why? Because where are you going to stick 3,000 people? Right? So small groups are not, a, not an invention of this church. They're just a necessity to live out the life and the love that Jesus has given to us. We just can't do it all in this room. Imagine what would love look like if we were just all trying to love each other in here. It'd be kind of weird. I don't know what it would look like. <laughs> we'd just all stand there and stare at each other because we wouldn't talk to each other, right? Like, uh, I'm, I love you, right? We need, we need to be in each other's lives, and it's really in the, the daily rhythms, in the ins and outs, the unexpected, in the unplanned phone calls, the voicemails, the texts, the, the conversations that happen when you just let somebody talk for a little bit that you, you find out how you can begin to wash somebody else's feet. And so we got to get into a smaller group and get with some people that we're going to commit to doing that for one another. So your next step, if you're not in a small group, is to join one. Again, it's not the 11th commandment, thou shalt join a small group, but it's just a necessity to obey the commands of Jesus and to love one another. I don't know how you're going to really do it without it. It's a place where you can open up, you can begin to trust people with your life, and over time, as you build trust, you can begin to maybe peel back some of those layers and maybe you get, start getting to some sin in your life that has been living in the dark for a long time and you want, it, you want it to be exposed, but you just don't know how to do it. And you've been getting beat by, by it for so long that you just don't know that if there's victory possible. It's with those people, relationships where you can ask questions and where you can give other people permission to butt into your life when they need to, to help you and me make progress in our sanctification. Help you and me make progress in laying aside our status, foregoing the entitlement that we're holding on to. If you're a small group leader in the room, you can, uh, I'm gonna let you just walk out, head out into those rooms because we're gonna dismiss out there in a bit. There's not a, a song of response today. The way that we're asking each person to respond here and we'll pray and have some time to do that is just to consider the words of Jesus that you've heard today. Very clear that we would love one another with this same kind of love. That we would love one another by washing each other's feet. That we would do whatever it takes for another person to make steps towards Christ. We would do whatever it takes before this great big act of love, of laying down your life, we've got to deny ourselves. We've got to lay down our lives right now. So I'm just going to ask us as we take some time to pray, what is it, what do you need to die to so that you can begin to love people? We can't love somebody else the way Jesus loved us if we love ourselves first. So as we pray, I'm going to ask you to do a few things. And if you've never joined a group before or you're just willing to maybe take me up on this offer, you're going to go out there and you're going to see they're laid out Monday through Friday in order of the days they met. And that's one of the ways that we help you kind of figure out, uh, you know, what works best for your schedule. But I even want to encourage you in that. It may not be what works best for you and your schedule. This may not be a matter of convenience. In fact, love is rarely convenient, is it? A newborn teaches you that, reminds you of that very quickly. <laughs> So you may think, I've got stuff to do that night, but I'm just telling you, as somebody who's been on the receiving end, Joe had stuff to do from 10 to 11.30 Mondays for an entire school year. 
And he didn't, he, he barely knew me. I was just some 18 year old from out of state. I wasn't a rising leader in the university, wasn't the brightest. I was just a kid who called him and asked for another brother in Christ for, for help because he needed help. And Joe helped me. And he, he cut out whatever he did for an hour and a half out of his workday to help me. Maybe you have to cut out some things so that one of those nights works for you. If you're also joining a group, I want you to maybe even consider this. You know, we have cars, we can drive on highways, and we can get places much quicker than we could have in the past, but I want you to consider maybe, if it's possible, to consider joining a group that meets within a mile of your home. Consider joining a group that's actually nearby because it's just much easier in the daily rhythms of life to be with people who live in proximity to you where you don't have to drive 15, 20, 30 minutes, where you can walk over, where you can ride a bike, where you're going to go past each other. I'm not saying it's a requirement. I'm just saying maybe something to consider that you would rethink why you're going to align yourself and commit to a group of people. Maybe consider your proximity to them. So let's pray together. I want you to ask God to do something. I want you to either maybe ask God to identify if he's not already just a sin in your life. Like I shared with you, that's just been hanging around and it's been living in the dark and you maybe are convicted of it regularly, but you're just fighting it alone. I want you to ask God to identify that and give you the courage to confront that today. Or perhaps you've given up fighting and that happens at times. I want you to ask God to give you the courage to pick up the phone and make a call. The courage to re-engage the fight for holiness. Or maybe you're just numb. The sin has become respectable to you. It's become so common amongst Christians that it's just not a, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. In fact, I mean, it's not one of those big sins. It's just become maybe even part of the landscape of your life. You're even known for it. Well, let's ask God together to, that he would awaken your heart to that. So why don't you pray for yourself, but why don't you also pray for the people in and around you that God would do these things for them. Okay, let's pray together. God, blessed are those you say in your word whose ways are blameless, who walk according to your law. God, you say blessed are those who keep his and hers ways pure and who seek you with all their heart. God, will you cleanse us and give us an upright heart today? Give us a new desire. Give us a willingness to do whatever it takes to help a brother or a sister move forward. God, help us to see and hold our life and see it as you do, here today, gone tomorrow. Help us to die to ourselves, to our agenda, to our priorities, to what matters most to me and mine, so that I can help my brother, help my sister become more like you. To experience freedom from sin, joy that comes from salvation. God, we pray right now for each other in this room, God, that there you would give, give us the courage to confront the sin that's in our life and to bring it into the light. God, we pray for one another right now that you would give us the courage to pick up the phone and ask, ask someone to wash our feet. God, we intercede for those right now whose hearts are deadened to sin or becoming deadened, who are just numb. God, help them to feel again, awaken them to you and the hope that you give through Christ. It's in these things that we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed. You can go to the lobby. Hang out, tables out there.
We'll see you guys next week. Say.